0: All right, uh, liftoff, and the clock has started. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Discovery, go at throttle up. And lift off, the final liftoff of Atlantis on the shoulders of the space shuttle. America will continue the dream.
1: This is the space shuttle. Episode 420, This Week in Space History, for April 6th to the 12th. I'm John Wolnix A quick news update before we get to the history today. Earlier this morning, the last of the original SpaceX Dragon capsules splashed down in the Pacific Ocean. The SpaceX Dragon capsule has carried cargo to and from the International Space Station since 2012. SpaceX has moved development to Crew Dragon, or the Dragon 2 capsule, which should start flying astronauts to the ISS here in the next couple of weeks. The Demo 2 mission is slated to launch no earlier than middle or late May, with astronauts Doug Hurley and Bob Behnken. Godspeed to the crew, and we're looking forward to seeing those flights. Now, let's get to some history. On April 6, 1984, the Space Shuttle Challenger lifted off from Pad 39A at Kennedy Space Center. This audacious mission had a plan to repair a satellite in orbit, and it was captured by IMAX cameras and shown in the movie The Dream is Alive. During this flight, Challenger also carried the LDEF, or Long Duration Exposure Facility, into orbit, where it ended up staying for nearly six years, marooned in space after the Challenger disaster. The initial deployment of LDEF took place 28 hours into the mission. The shuttle's remote manipulator system, or its robotic arm, grappled LDEF in two spots, one to activate certain experiments which require power, and another that was designed for deploying the spacecraft. According to NASA, quote, LDEF experiments range in research interest from materials to medicine to astrophysics. All of them require free-flying exposure in space, but no extensive electrical power, data handling, or attitude control systems. Many of the experiments are relatively simple, and some will be completely passive while in orbit. The results of the exposure in space will be analyzed in post-flight laboratory investigations after LDEF is returned to Earth. you a fan of the podcast, you know I've talked about LDEF numerous times. It's one of my favorite spacecraft, even though it's kind of a weird mission. Um, I've talked about it in episodes 240 and 318, among many others. A lot of the material science experiments on this flight helped inform the design of the International Space Station. Since LDEF's mission was extended for so long, it gave scientists an incredibly detailed look at how materials handle the environment, In low Earth orbit. The most dramatic part of STS 41C was the repairs to the malfunctioning Solar Max satellite. The Solar Maximum Mission, or Solar Max, launched on February 14th, 1980, and it was one of the topics that I talked about way back in episode 276. The repair of this satellite is highlighted in the movie The Dream is Alive, and we're going to talk about some of the specifics of this repair mission here. Solar Max was crippled when three hermetically sealed fuses blew, which crippled the attitude control system on the spacecraft. The Solar Max repairs started on flight day 3 of STS 41C and ended on flight day 5. In order to capture the Solar Max satellite, astronaut George Nelson flew out to the crippled spacecraft with his MMU, or Manned Maneuvering Unit. This backpack plus an astronaut weighed in at a staggering 740 pounds here on Earth, but in space, an astronaut in the MMU was a nimble mini-spacecraft. The MMU had 24 nitrogen gas thrusters for control, which were supposed to help George Nelson slow the spinning Solar Max satellite. Sadly, it didn't work out that way as it had been planned on the ground, Here's George Pinky Nelson's account of what happened from his JSC Oral History interview. Nelson states that, quote, The first spacewalk didn't work out like we'd planned, and that was pretty strange. Everything worked perfectly until I got to the satellite and flew up to dock with it, and then it didn't work. So I ended up making things worse rather than better, making the satellite tumble, and trying all kinds of stuff. Actually, just grabbing hold of the solar arrays. It was pretty exciting in retrospect, and the memories of the view from there are just amazing. The shuttle against the Earth and the jets firing and all this. What an extraordinary experience to be able to fly the MMU. Nelson continues, quote, Then, to actually have the ground bail us out, which was pretty neat, I think, because after the first spacewalk, when we had blown the capture, I thought... Oh God, this thing isn't going to work. I don't know why. I did everything I was supposed to do, but I know I'm going to get the blame for this. The credit for not having it work. Now, what do we do? So luckily, the ground bailed us out, and TJ, or Terry Hart, was able to grab the satellite so we were able to actually complete the mission. In an interview with Terry, or TJ Hart, he details the backup plan. Since Nelson wasn't able to slow the spacecraft using his MMU, quote, Now our backup plan was for me to use the arm and grab solar max, which I could have done in the original spin, but now because he was banging into it, instead of spinning, it was tumbling. It was kind of moving in all sorts of strange attitudes, and the pin I had to grab was right underneath one of the large solar panels, so I could only get in there under certain conditions, and it was very hard to predict how it was doing, but we knew it was wobbling too much. After a tense overnight period with the tumbling spacecraft losing power, ground crews worked furiously to stabilize the spacecraft for one more attempt. The next day, after some orbital maneuvering with the shuttle, it was finally time for go on the capture. Hart described his reaction of himself and the crew after they were able to capture the satellite. Quote, it was euphoric. I mean, we really felt that the mission was at risk, which it was, and we were really on a mission that was demonstrating the flexibility and the usefulness of the shuttle to do things like repair. We were afraid we were disappointing a lot of people, the scientists, of course, wanting to put the science satellite back into service, but all the people at NASA that were showing what the shuttle could do. In reality, we demonstrated even more, just the flexibility of human spaceflight, that you can adapt to things that are unexpected, like this pen and the problems that it caused us. So it was a good opportunity to show even better what the shuttle could do. I've mentioned this countless times, but I really love the oral histories that are on the JSC website. The wealth of information on these missions, plus funny things like the fact that Pete Conrad used to say tickety-boo, a British saying for everything that's alright or fine, just crack me up. Be sure to check out the links in the show notes for all of NASA's Johnson Space Center Oral History website. On April 7, 1991, the Compton Gamma Ray Observatory was deployed from the payload bay of the space shuttle Atlantis. Atlantis launched on April fifth, 1991, on a five-day, 23-hour mission. The primary objective for this mission STS 37 was the deployment of the Compton Gamma Ray Observatory, a spacecraft that was designed to observe the high energy bursts that were still not fully understood at the time. Gamma rays are a type of electromagnetic radiation that were discovered at the beginning of the 20th century. Other types of electromagnetic radiation include X rays, infrared light, visible light, really anything on the electromagnetic spectrum. Gamma rays are used in numerous ways to help improve the quality of life here on Earth, from surgeries to treating gemstones. The field of gamma ray astronomy started during the Cold War. The United States military's Project Vela satellites, that I talked about back in episode 4, that was a long time ago, detected gamma ray bursts, or extremely violent celestial events, during the late 1960s when they were monitoring for nuclear explosions on Earth. Space-based gamma-ray telescopes are absolutely crucial for astronomers. Since Earth's atmosphere blocks most gamma rays, we have to have space-based observation platforms to be able to detect a majority of these particles. I want to touch on a little bit more history here, especially for the Vela satellites. Since the first use of nuclear weapons in World War II, there have been over 2,000 weapons tests. Carried out by nuclear powers. As part of treaties like the Partial Test Ban Treaty, space based detectors, like the Vela satellites, have been in use for the past half century. Part of making sure that signatories to the Partial Test Ban Treaty complied with the agreement meant that the United States government had to have a way to monitor the planet for the telltale signs of nuclear testing. While the VELA satellites were designed to detect nuclear weapons tests on Earth, they were also sensitive to GRBs, or gamma-ray bursts, which come from outside the solar system. The extremely violent nature of these cosmic events means that the radiation that's generated can be detected from billions of light-years away. Gamma-ray astronomy allows us to peer into cosmic events like supernova or hypernova which are the violent explosions of massive stars, and they collapse to form anything from a black hole to a neutron star. When a star goes supernova, it explodes and sends that material that was once the star out into space, spreading heavy elements across space at up to 10% the speed of light. I talked about how gamma-ray astronomy can help scientists and astronomers understand these violent events way back in episode 49. The deployment of the Compton Gamma-ray Observatory wasn't without its hiccups. According to NASA, quote, The Gamma-ray Observatory's high-gain antenna would not open even after the crew fired the orbiter's reaction control jets and shook the observatory with Canada arm. After several attempts to free the antenna failed, mission specialists Ross and Jay Apt donned their spacesuits to complete the first unscheduled spacewalk in six years. Coincidentally, Ross had participated in the last shuttle spacewalk before the Challenger accident had occurred. Ross recounts that he was nervous about going outside, not because it had been six years since his last EVA, but because he, quote, didn't know what was wrong with it, I didn't know if I could fix it or not. Because the solar arrays had been deployed, it was possible that the crew would not be able to bring the observatory home. The agency needed the satellite to work. This was during a time that NASA had faced very, very public criticism for the Hubble Space Telescope, which suffered a major issue with its mirror. The mission success for STS-37 and the deployment of the Compton Gamma Ray Observatory was of paramount importance for NASA. Ross remembers that he, quote, pushed the observatory a few times, and only after a few minutes, the antenna came loose and he locked it into position. Ross remembered that it was a, quote, really good feeling. He explained that it was a nice feeling to demonstrate, quote, where the man in the loop can help a robotic system, and let it go off and do some really great science. And I think that's the point we need to get to with all of NASA's missions. Robotic explorers do an incredible job looking around the solar system and helping us peer into new places and discover new science. NASA's InSight mission is an example of a limit on a robotic spacecraft. Check out the show notes for more on NASA's attempts to get the little mole digger working again. Next up, on April 8, 1964, at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, Gemini 1 lifted off on an uncrewed orbital test of the Titan II launch vehicle. This launch tested the launch vehicle, the Gemini spacecraft, and the compatibility between the two. Unlike later Gemini missions, the second stage stayed attached to the Gemini spacecraft and both entered orbit together. This mission called for three orbits total but an excess speed at stage separation meant that the spacecraft stayed in orbit much longer, re-entering and disintegrating on the 64th orbital pass on April 12th. The next uncrewed launch for Jiminy wasn't until January of 1965, and I talked about this mission back in episode 250. We've got some more shuttle flights for April 8th, the first is STS 56, which launched on April 8, 1993. Discovery carried the Atlas II payload, which studied the, quote, relationship between the sun's energy output and Earth's middle atmosphere and how those factors affect the ozone layer. Which is pretty cool. The second mission is STS 110, which launched on April 8, 2002. The shuttle Atlantis carried a crew of seven on an International Space Station assembly mission. In a funny scheduling coincidence, astronaut Ellen Ochoa launched into space on April 8th two times on STS-56 and STS-110. She was a veteran of four space flights, with STS-56 being her first flight and STS-110 being her last. She was also the director of Johnson Space Center, and if you'd like to learn more about her, I'm linking to a couple of resources in the show notes. We've got some SpaceX history up next. CRS-8, or the Commercial Resupply Services 8, mission launched on April 8th, 2016. The Dragon spacecraft carried supplies and the beam module to the International Space Station. This launch is notable because this Falcon 9 booster was brought back to Earth for the first successful landing on the drone ship Of Course I Still Love You. Now we're going way back to the beginning of the space race. On April 9, 1959, in a press conference in Washington, D.C., America's first seven astronauts were announced. The selection process for Astronaut Group 1 started from 508 service records, all branches of the U.S. military. From that group, NASA notes that 110 men were found to meet the minimum standards, After grueling medical and psychological examinations whittled down the number of participants, NASA eventually settled on seven, instead of six, of the 18 finalists.
0: Today we are introducing to you, and to the world, these seven men who have been selected to begin training for orbital space flight. These men, the nation's Project Mercury astronauts, are here after a long and perhaps unprecedented series of evaluations which told our medical consultants and scientists of their superb adaptability to their coming flight. Which of these men will be first to orbit the Earth? I cannot tell you. He won't know himself until the day of the flight. The astronaut training program will last probably two years, during this time our urgent goal is to subject these gentlemen to every stress, each unusual environment they will experience in that flight. Before the first flight, we will have developed our Mercury spaceship to the point where it will be as reliable as man can devise. We expect it to be as reliable as any experimental aircraft. It's my pleasure to introduce to you, and I consider it a very real honor, gentlemen. From your right, Malcolm S. Carpenter, Leroy Leroy G. Cooper, John H. Glenn, Virgil I. Grissom, Walter M. Shearer, Alan B. Shepard, Donald K. Slayton, these ladies and gentlemen are the nation's Mercury astronauts.
1: Six of the seven astronauts you just heard from flew during Project Mercury, ranging from suborbital shots to orbital flights of increasing duration and complexity. Donald Deke Slayton was disqualified due to a heart condition, but he later flew into space on the Apollo-Soyuz Test Project mission. After the April 9, 1959 announcement of the Mercury 7, there was a period of work on preparing the Mercury capsule for human spaceflight. We're just over a year away from the 60th anniversary of America's first human spaceflight. Alan Shepard's launch with his Freedom 7 capsule was only 15 minutes and 28 seconds long, but it was a necessary first step. The astronauts of Astronaut Group 1 were an incredible group of men. One of them even walked on the moon. Alan Shepard was the first American in space, and he was also walking on the moon during Apollo 14. One of the Mercury 7 even flew on a space shuttle. John Glenn became the oldest person to fly into space at this point, Glenn was also the last surviving member of Astronaut Group 1 when he passed away in December of 2016. The legacy of the Mercury 7 will live on, in part because of the nature of these first flights and to the media sensation that ensued in the wake of their announcement. The very public NASA flights during the Cold War put these machines and astronauts in the spotlight on the national and international stage, Their iconic silvery spacesuits, smiles, and their accomplishments will live into history, a testament to the spirit of exploration. Apollo 13 lifted off on April 11, 1970. Astronauts Jim Lovell, Fred Hayes, and Jack Swigert launched on what should have been the third human mission to the moon's surface. We'll talk more about Apollo 13 in a standalone episode, so keep an eye out for it because this is the 50th anniversary of Apollo 13. Next up, we have the 59th anniversary of the first human spaceflight. On April 12, 1961, Yuri Gagarin became the first human to enter space and orbit Earth. Vostok 1's mission lasted for 108 minutes, and cosmonaut Gagarin and his capsule completed one orbit of Earth. In the excellent book, Challenge to Apollo, Asef Siddiqui details the events leading up to Vostok 1. If you've never read Challenge to Apollo, I highly recommend the book. The details and insights are unparalleled if you're interested in Soviet space history from the end of World War II up to the 1970s. The success of Gagarin's flight is undeniable, and his place in the history books is secure. What Americans didn't know, and what the rest of the world definitely didn't know, was that the success of the Soviet R-7 rocket wasn't undeniable at that point in history. Siddiqui sums up the risk of this flight succinctly in his chapter on Gagarin. I'm also linking to an article that he wrote that details more of the perils of this mission, so check out the show notes if you'd like to learn more. At the time of Gagarin's launch, the success ratio for the R-7 rocket stood at 50%, which is concerning considering the Soviets sent a human into space. Thankfully, Gagarin's flight was successful, and he was able to experience spaceflight and seeing Earth from space. He was able to eat food, take notes, and operated the spacecraft during his time in orbit. The mission had progressed nominally until after the retro rockets had fired, a tumbling motion developed, which was about 30 degrees per second, and it put Gagarin into an uncontrolled spin. The spherical descent module didn't separate from the instrument section of the spacecraft as had been planned. Eventually, the two parts of the spacecraft separated as they were supposed to, which allowed the capsule and Gagarin to return to Earth. Unlike other spacecraft, cosmonauts ejected from the early Vostok capsule before landing, a side hatch opened at the spacecraft, and seconds later, the cosmonaut, who was sitting in their seat, ejected out and landed by parachute. The capsule landed way harder than was survivable, which is why cosmonauts had to bail out early. Gagarin landed in a field, and after walking a bit, he saw a woman who helped him find a telephone so he could radio back that he was okay. Gagarin traveled the world on a Goodwill tour, and even met Gemini 4 astronauts at the Paris International Air Show in June of 1965. Sadly, Yuri never flew into space again, and he died in a crash in a MiG-15 trainer jet. He, along with the 13 others lost in the pursuit of spaceflight, are memorialized on a plaque left behind by the crew of Apollo 15. Astronauts Scott and Irwin also left behind a small figure which represented the fallen astronauts and cosmonauts. Let's end today with a happier piece of space history. On April 12, 1981, just 20 years after Yuri's historic flight, John Young and Robert Crippen lifted off into the history books as the first crew of the space shuttle program. Columbia lifted off just seconds after 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time from Pad 39A. Their mission was the first time that astronauts had flown on a launch vehicle that hadn't previously been tested. The shuttle stack, the orbiter, SRBs, and external tank were all flying together for the first time. Commander John Young, a Jiminy and Apollo veteran, plus rookie astronaut Robert Crippen, spent two days in space testing orbiter systems, and demonstrating, quote, safe launch into orbit and return to landing of Columbia and its crew. During liftoff of Columbia, the water sound suppression system on the launch pad didn't fully dampen the effects of the massive solid rocket boosters on the shuttle. The overpressure wave that these engines created damaged tiles on the orbiter, with 16 lost and 148 damaged. Thankfully, these tiles weren't in critical areas on the orbiter, so their loss did not pose a threat to the crew's safety or the success of the mission. Young and Crippen landed at Edwards Air Force Base on April 14th, having completed the first flight of the shuttle program. And one final, final note here after the first launch of Columbia. STS 51D launched on April 12, 1985, and it was the first time that a sitting politician had flown into space. Utah Senator Jake Garn was a payload specialist during this mission, and he's the namesake for an unofficial scale, or the Garn scale, which refers to how much space sickness someone experiences during the flight. That's one heck of a thing to be remembered by. And that is it for this week. I do have a call-in number if you'd like to ask a question or leave a comment. Just dial 720-772-7988 and leave a message. I'm looking forward to sharing the questions that you may have with all of the listeners. As always, the links to everything we talked about today are in the show notes. If you're new to the podcast, I'd appreciate it if you could subscribe and leave a review. Reviews in Apple Podcasts help more people find out about the show, and they help make sure it reaches as many people as possible. Until next time, I'm John Mulnix, and I'll catch you on the flip side.